0: good morning welcome if it's uh, if you're coming back for a second time after easter i want to say welcome back again um i'm pastor john pastor bob is our normal teacher but uh today i'm on so hey do you guys ever notice that sometimes our dreams um kind of we sometimes have a difficult time telling where our dreams end and reality begins you guys ever been there you know, it can be kind of a confusing thing where your dream merges with real life. E- each Sunday morning, my wife and I, usually during the week, we get up about the same time. But on Sunday, I usually get up a lot earlier than her because I get here around six thirty, seven in the morning. It's still dark out. So, uh, you know, I shower, I get ready, and um, then I go back into our room and it's dark. And so to not like disturb her too much because I have to turn the lights on to see my clothes or else I won't match, right? So I, I kind of like that. Well, it can be your—we'll your, uh, we'll, we'll let you guys be at the discretion of whether I match or not. But um, So I turn on the lights. What I do before I turn on the lights, I usually say, okay, baby, I'm going to put the mask on you now. And she has like this, you know, the sleeping mask that's on the post of the bed. So I usually say that to her. She's like, okay, and I, and I slide it over her head, and I turn the lights, do my stuff, you know, and then we pray, and I leave. And, uh, but this one morning I figured, you know, we do this, like well, how long we've we been doing this, right? She's going to know I'm going to put the mask on her head. So I go over to her and I, I put the mask on her head without saying anything. All of a sudden she starts slapping my hand in her head and she's screaming out loud. I'm like, baby, baby, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she's like, spiders, spiders, they're all over my head. I'm like... Oh, my God, you know, this dream that she was having, you know, I had to calm her down, relax her. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, baby, you know. Like, uh, next time I'll say, I promise, next time I'll tell you when I'm going to put the mask on. She goes, it was so real, you know. And uh, it's true like that. They can just seem to have, you ever get a physical reaction like that, though, when you're sleeping? Have you seen that? I had a roommate once who, who, uh, who talked in his sleep. Right? And then we know people that sleepwalk, or once in a while, if the dream is real enough, we actually do something physical. And that happens to me on occasion. And one night when we were uh, asleep, I had this dream, and someone was literally like attacking me. So like, I kept pushing them away, and they wouldn't get away from me, so I swung at them. Right? That's how real the dream was. And I realized, because you ever do that when you dream, and you actually do something like kick, or do something, it wakes you up. And so it jarred me awake, and I realized I had just swung and hit something. So I look over and I go to my wife and I'm like, baby. And all of a sudden she's like crying in her sleep. My face hurts. <laughs> my face hurts. I'm like, oh my God, baby, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I'm like trying to console her with my best, I'm so sorry voice, you know. And I'm like, I'm trying to like blame it on the cat. You know, that that bad cat, he laid it on your face while you were helplessly sleeping. Do you want me to punish him? Will that make you feel better? You know, and I'm petting her head and I'm like, oh my gosh. All I really wanted to do at that moment was just comfort her. I felt so bad and she seemed so helpless. And I was like, oh, man, I just wanted her to feel better. And it's true, right? When we see someone who's sad or upset or mourning, we want to comfort them, don't we? But I think we've all been in the place where we find it's difficult to comfort someone who is mourning or who is in sorrow. Because a lot of times we just don't feel we have the answers. We feel kind of helpless without solutions, I was over at my mother-in-law's house a while back, and somehow I found myself in the middle of a Twilight Marathon. You know the movie Twilight, right? Some of you are familiar with Twilight. So we didn't just watch Twilight, though we watched Twilight, then New Moon, and then Eclipse, one right after the other. So I got my fill of this whole thing. You guys know Breaking Dawn Part 2 comes out in November. It's a little ways away. Some of you are excited about that and others. Could care less. This movie is this movie series is about these kids in high school, and this girl named Bella is one of the main characters. And Bella has a friend named Edward in high school, and in the first movie, she realized he's a vampire, right? And she they fall in love. So she's in this romantic thing, but then Edward wants to protect her, so he leaves. And he leaves town and just disappears. And now Bella sinks into a depression. And there's nothing that her father can do. There's nothing that her friends can do that are going to bring her back. Of course, enter team Jacob, right? Right? The werewolf guy comes. But even he's not quite enough. The only thing that's going to take it away is this guy, Edward, coming back into her life. And you see, um, listen, guys, I I don't write it. I I just watched it. I was forced to watch it. That's it. But, you know, like Bella... Sometimes there are things in life that seem that we're never going to quite get over the sorrow, right? Like maybe it's a relationship that was broken or maybe a loved one that was lost. And sometimes in life, it seems that comfort to our mourning is not always guaranteed. And that's why when Jesus told his disciples this, it's in your outline, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. It probably just blew them away. Like, really? Are you sure about that? Because we all know that over time, maybe feelings go away, but after all, are we really comforted? And Jesus always had a way of saying things that challenged the norm, that made us question. And here he is standing on top of this mountainside, and he's preaching this sermon. This strange rabbi, he was like, unlike the other ones, this strange teacher starts telling us about the keys to a successful life. And he goes on for three chapters talking about how to have a successful life. And the first words out of his mouth seem so contrary to what we really know about life, don't they? Last week, Pastor Bob did an excellent job on the first uh, Beatitude. Because we're in the series called The Contrarian's Guide to Happiness. And he covered how happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then right after that, the very next line, Jesus says this. Happier are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I mean... Don't you wonder how is the mourner happy? It's like happy are you if you mourn. That doesn't seem quite to make sense to me. In in the New Testament, there are nine words for the word mourn. You see, the Greek has 70, 70 million words, while the English language has only four hundred and ninety Thousand words. That's a big difference. So they use a ton of words and we have to use a bunch of our own little words to make up for theirs. But the word that they use that Jesus employed there is the worst type of mourning possible, the most severe type. So here he is saying, Happy are those who have the deepest mourning. I mean that just doesn't seem to make sense. I mean it's a paradox. The way to happiness is mourning. I mean that's what I'm thinking. But God says here there is a comfort that always comes from a certain type of mourning. What Jesus is referring to, just drop that, is our sins. That's right, I said sin. Here's the thing, I don't think we like that word sin. It's not a very popular word. It's not very socially acceptable. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And to make, maybe help you feel a little bit more comfortable talking about that, let's just say the word sin out loud, okay? I'm going to say, on one, two, three, say sin. One, two, three. Sin. All right, let's do it again. One, two, three. Sin. One more time. You guys sound like a cult out there. I don't know what's going on here. Listen, that word makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it, at times? And the truth is, it should. It should make us feel uncomfortable because it's a representation of our faults. It's a representation of our failures, our darker side. And it's the side that we try to hide, right? We don't want others to know about our sin. It's the thing that we like to only whisper about. And I think this very human response to sin is the very thing that hinders us many times from forgiveness. You may have heard the story of King David. King David saw this woman bathing, and his name was Bathsheba, and he liked her, but she had a husband. But still, he brought her over into his house, and they had an affair. And then the husband comes home, and he ends up murdering the husband, or he arranges it so that he would die. And now David keeps this secret hidden for a year. For a whole year, he's hiding. He hasn't confessed it. He won't give it up. And he writes words in the Psalms that say like his bones grew old and that the vitality was drained from his life this whole year, even though he kind of got what he wanted, he was not comforted. He was restless. He was struggling with life because sin that is not dealt with has a way of robbing us from peace, doesn't it? Right? Those things that we do and we just haven't really confessed them or issues that we have with other people and we won't, Find forgiveness with them, they just bother us deep down. Until sin is brought forth, then only then can it be dealt with. In fact, when David actually confesses, listen to what he says, it's in your outline. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Oh, what joy! Just like, blessed is the man. That was what he was saying. What joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. When we confess and mourn our sins, we experience the comfort that Jesus is talking about. Listen, today we're going to explore that idea. You're like, hey, didn't we explore it already? We're going to go a little deeper. And we're going to look at it through a life of a man named Lot. And Lot was this guy from the Old Testament. If you can go to Genesis chapter 19, we're going to read there a little bit in a few minutes. And this guy Lot, well, he's He is a nephew of a guy named Abraham. Abraham is the father of Israel. He was called out of his own country by God to go into the land that would become Israel. At that time, it was Canaan. And God had called him out. And then he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And from Abraham comes all the tribes of Israel. That's where they come from. So he's the father of Israel. Well, when he came out of his country, he came with some extra baggage. His cousin, I'm sorry, his nephew Lot comes with him. He takes him with him. And they're doing great. God's prospering them. And Lot has lots of uh, servants and, and sheeps and herds and all stuff. And Abraham's a lot of them. And they're all sharing a similar area. And so they start to get in disputes over wells and all this other stuff. So Abraham gets to the point. He says, listen, we kind of have to part ways here, Lot. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you pick whatever area you, you want. You look around. And whichever side you, you think you want to go, you go. And then if you go east, I'll go west. If you go north, I'll go south. That kind of thing. So Sodom, lo- uh, Lot looks out. And he looks at all the land, and he sees this area called the Jordan uh, Valley, this area. And he looks there, and he sees that it's fertile, and it's green. And he's like, wow, that, that's, that's a good deal over there. It also has all the cities, and he liked the cities. Sodom and Gomorrah, we're going to talk about that. They, they were there, and he's like, I want to go there. That's where I want to be. Now, this area of Sodom, even at this time, it's known as the place of, uh, that it's a wicked place. In uh, I think I asked Pedro to put it up. It says the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. S- L- Lot already knew this, but Lot decides to what he says in the Bible pitch his tent towards Sodom. So he goes and he lives right near Sodom. He goes, this is the place I want to be. He takes the worst place that he could possibly be, be for a spiritual standpoint, and he goes, I'm going to hang out right there. Now fast forward a bunch of years. Abraham's sitting outside his tent, wherever he's at, and these angels come by, and he starts talking with the angels, and then he sees them off their way, and he's, he's talking with them. They go, hey, where are you going? And he's like, well, the angels go, well, the cry, the outcry of how wicked Sodom is has come up to heaven, and we're actually going to go down to that city and the other cities that are surrounding it, and if it's really that bad, we're going to go destroy it. So, Abraham does this kind of wheel and deal thing. Will you destroy it if it's 50 people? No, We you 10, 20? You know, he gets all the way down to 10. And then they say, no, we won't destroy it if there's 10 good people in that city. And then they take off and they get to Sodom. And that's where we're going to pick it up in Genesis 19, verse 1. It says, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, here now, my Lord's, Please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people of every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. I think you guys know what that means. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him and said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you. And you may do to them as you wish, only do nothing to these men, since this is the the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door, but the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so they became very tired trying to find the door. So these angels show up in, in Sodom, and there's Lot sitting in the gate, the gate area. And and he sees them coming. And so he's like, hey, you guys, you have no place to stay. I can tell your strangers. You come stay with me. He takes them into his house. He feeds them, all this stuff. And then all the men, it says all the people in the city come out because they want to do some bad things to these strangers. And then Lot comes out and he says, here, take my daughters instead. And then the angels kind of rescue him and they blind everybody and so they can't find the door. And that's where we're in the story right now. But did you see something that was wrong there? Did something seem strange to you? I was thinking, Lot, you started off great, right? You see these strangers, you're hospitable, you take them in, you protect them in your household, and then you feed them a great feast. But here's something interesting. In the place of them, he was going to give them his daughters, right? I mean, does that seem weird to you? Or all you guys would go, yeah, I would do that too. That's what I would do. I'm thinking, are you crazy? The first point in your outline is this, if you have it out. Those who mourn recognize their sins. Those who mourn recognize their sins. This one part seems so out of place in the story. I mean, it's almost shocking to believe because I thought Lot was one of the good guys, right? It seemed that way. I mean, he seems morally good, but somehow he is blinded. I went a number of years back, I went to visit Seattle, beautiful city. And they're just there for vacation, checking it out. And so we were doing, seeing all these sites. And at that time, I had lived in Boston. That's where I was living. So when I went to Seattle, I'm checking stuff out. We're going to see sites. And one particular site that was on our list, it says it's one of the oldest buildings in Seattle, built in like the 1800s. So I'm standing there, we're looking around, we're like, this has got to be the place. There's this brick building right here with wrought iron gates, but it doesn't look that old to me, you know? And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. So we're looking. Now, I lived in in Boston. I mean, there there are buildings there from the 1600s, the the 1700s, 200 years before anyone was built in Seattle. So I'm thinking old, right? So I'm looking, it comes to find out, we're standing right in front of it, and I didn't even know it. Because I was so used to seeing old buildings that I had no idea that this new building, (laughs) this 200-year-old building, was old. Lot had the same problem. Lot was surrounded by sinful activity daily. He seems like a moral man. But it's one small compromise after another that took him to a place where he finally can't see things straight. I mean, first he goes and he buys like a, you know, a five-bedroom house in the suburbs of, Lot of Sodom, right? And like, hey, I'm going to go move right near there. And the next thing you know, he's sitting in the gate, it says. You see, in the custom of that day, if you were sitting in the gate of the city, it meant that you were a judge or a ruler of that city. Because that's where everybody's matters that needed to be ruled over would be brought to the gate. And that's where the rulers would sit. So Lot is actually a ruler of the city. Something I didn't mention between when Lot moved towards Sodom... And this point right here was that there were five, four kings that came and attacked Sodom at one point. And they took all the people, they won, they defeated everybody. They take all the people, they take all the treasure and they're taken off and they're leaving. And word of it gets back to Abraham and Abraham goes, oh my gosh, my nephew's probably with him. So he gathers up all his servants. He goes after the four kings and he defeats them. And then he rescues Lot, he rescues all the people of the city, he rescues all their treasure and he just gives it all back to them. And he says, okay, that's fine. So they make Lot like the governor, the mayor of the city because of his uncle, because of Uncle Abraham had rescued him. So they're like, hey, sure, Lot, you sounds good. Your guy saved us, so here. So Lot goes from hanging out with Abraham, think about it, from the very beginning, God's right-hand man, right, to being mayor of Sinville. It's like, right? That's what happened. It's like, how did, how did it get to be like that? He's living right in the middle of it because he's been surrounded From by sin for so long, I think now he has trouble seeing it. He knows it's wrong for the people of the city to attack these strangers, but he can't see them doing that to his own daughters isn't wrong either. The lot syndrome can happen pretty easily for all of us. To be truthful, the Bible says this: Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter? Most of us would say we know the difference between right and wrong, right? It's what happens to you and me, though, when we continue down a path that flirts with sin. You know, many people have a similar story when they come to my office and I ask them about, you know, how did you come to know the Lord or if I'm just talking to people. A lot of people say the same thing. And you know why it's similar? Because it's my story too, is the truth of the matter. Because at one point, we were introduced to God when we were a child. And we said, yeah, I knew God. You know, people taught me about God. It's not everybody's story, but it's a lot of people's. And we said, yeah, I believed in him. But at some point in our lives, the discovery of the world and what life had to offer was kind of glistening And so what we did, you know, we're becoming a teenager. All these new opportunities are opening up, all these things that we can do. So what we do is, and what I did was take one little compromise to do it. Yeah, it's not a big deal. I'm just going to compromise here. And then another little compromise there. And suddenly I found myself very far from God. And that's what people say. And then all of a sudden I'm, I, I don't know how I got here. It happens to us so easily. It's only one small step at a time. Lot finds himself in a place where he is becoming desensitized to sin. I mean, seriously, do you think he really needed two angels to come to his house to tell him he needs to get out of there? I mean, he's living among it every day. They said that the prayers of the victims of the people were hitting God's ears in heaven. How much more so should the guy who's living there witnessing it every day realize, I got to get out of here. But, you know, I really don't think that I can judge him like that because I realize that that's what God has to do for most of us, for you and for me. And he's probably done it for us all at one time in our lives. He has to bring us a wake-up call, right? I mean, we get involved with something that doesn't seem right, but we just make a compromise. And that compromise led to a habit and eventually it just became part of our lives and so much that it's been a part of our lives that we just come to accept it. And then God does this. God brings a friend Or God brings a circumstance or a trial or some revelation to get our attention. To bring us out of the place that we've been in, just like he's doing here for Lot. Listen, the first thing that we have to do is recognize that we sin. But the second thing we have to do, too, in your outline is this. Those who mourn are broken over their sins. Those who mourn are broken over their sins. Let's read the rest of the story in verse 12. It says, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your daughters, your your sons, your daughters, and whoever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws, who had married his daughters, and said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking, When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered... Think about that, while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life, do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please, no, my Lord, Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See, now this city near me uh, is near enough to flee, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there, and my soul shall live. And he said to them, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and I will, that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. So the next day, right, these guys are blinded. They couldn't find the door, the city people. And the next day, the angels are like, all right, we couldn't find anybody else. Get your family and get out. And of course, he had other daughters, so he had sons in law So he's like, he runs to their houses and he goes, hey, this place is gonna be destroyed. And they're like laughing at him. They think he's joking. So he comes back and then it says he's like, Lingering, he's just hanging out. I mean, he's just sitting there. I'm like, what's this guy up to? Shouldn't he be in a hurry to get out of there? But anyway, they grab him, they take him out, and then he's like, listen, go to the mountains, they angels say to him. Run to the mountains. And he's like, well, I can't go to the mountains. I might die up there. Can you let me have this one city? I know you were going to destroy that one too, but can I live in that city? I mean, I would think that after a night like that, If he hadn't seen it day after day, but after a night like that, right outside his own home, why would he want to go back to something like that? I mean, why would he want to get back involved into it? See, Lot begged these angels to bring him to a city that was near there. And it was like almost as if he wanted to hang out there. If he wanted to be destroyed, I mean, it says he lingered. I mean, what was he doing? Like, you know, I really love this chair right here, and I'm going to miss that right there. He's he's walking around. The angels have to grab him by the hand and drag him and his family out of there. It's like he'd rather be caught in sin. He'd rather be in sin and be destroyed than be at peace and be free. And then he's like, listen, I know you want me to go to the mountains, but you know what? I don't know if I can totally remove myself from this, so can I please go to the little city? And I know this one was bad enough too because you were going to destroy it, but will you let me go to that city? And they're like, all right. You know, I think... That Lot is just dying to get back into the same situation. This is what the Bible tells us. Fools mock at sin. It's a proverb. Fools mock at sin. The problem is that Lot saw the sin but was indifferent to it. He saw the sin. Yeah, I know it's wrong. I know what I'm doing. And even though God sends, he sees it daily happening in his neighborhoods. He sees it. uh, God sends messengers to him to, to tell him and to take him out of it, to point it out. Lot's just not broken over his sin. He's not broken over it. There are three hindrances. I put it in your outline. Three hindrances. There's probably more, but three hindrances to mourning over sin. The first is acceptance. Acceptance. And that means that we acknowledge, that we don't acknowledge that sin exists. We just accept it. We're like, hey, it's not sin. It's just a part of what we do. You know, did you guys know this? I brought it up in in my growth group the last week or the week before, that there are 18 states in the U.S. where adultery is illegal. Did you guys know that? 18 states. Florida is one of them, by the way. Somebody's like, really? But let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard of someone being arrested for it? Right? I mean, I guess it probably happens. Maybe it's not on the front page of the New York Times or anything like that. But I haven't heard about it. I haven't seen anybody prosecuting, looking out for that. Right? Because at one time, we saw this sin as bad. We saw it so bad enough that we said we're going to make a law against it. And now it's just become acceptable. Yeah, it's not sin. It's, you know what, it's really just a choice that people make. We're not going to call it sin. And that's becoming a very popular idea today. You know, there's actually, that there actually is no sin. And if there is no sin, then there's no judgment. And there's nobody that I have to be accountable to or accountable for. You know, after all, none of us really want to feel bad, right? We don't really want to make others feel bad either by telling them that they're bad, by telling them that they're sinners, because if we do that, they're going to have a complex. And some kid's going to grow up thinking he's bad all his life. And that would be bad, because then he would be maladjusted, right? But it's true. Isn't that the, what we're beginning to hear? That, they're, that everything is relative. And so we eliminate, we just completely eliminate the idea that there is even sin. The, the second thing that's a hindrance is denial. A denial. We don't think that we sin. I speak to a, a lot of people about coming to the Lord, just as I know many of you do. And a lot of times I'll talk to them and they'll say something like this when I'm trying to tell them about Jesus Christ, how he died for their sin. And then they'll say to me, yeah, but you know, my neighbor, he's like so good. I mean, he does charity work and I've never seen him even swear. And he, he's a perfect husband and all this stuff. And they say, you you tell me that he he needs Jesus. You need to tell me that he's not going to be able to go to heaven. And I'm thinking to myself, is this guy perfect? Do you have a perfect guy? You just don't see that he has sin. But that's kind of what we do. We make an excuse for it. We just kind of, we, we say, hey, this guy doesn't have sin. You know what? I, you know, I'm not really that bad. I'm not. I'm a pretty good person. I'm probably more good than bad. And so what we do is we're in denial. We're like, well, I'm not that bad. The truth is when we all yelled sin, you know, I don't know if you knew that, but we're all sinners here. I, I am one among you. Paul, the apostle who wrote the New Testament says, I'm the chief of sinners, so we're all in good company. We're all in the same company. I'm not like pointing fingers anywhere. But I find it interesting that sometimes we say, no, there is no sin. The second thing is, or we deny it, but the next thing is justification. Here in this section, we recognize sin, but we don't take responsibility for it, right? We kind of get defensive all the time when someone tries to point it out. And we have a ton of excuses why we are the exception to the rule, right? I know what it says, everybody else, but I not for me. In some way, our sin is justified by the circumstances that are around us, right? The truth is, most of us have been in one of these three places at one point in our lives. And if not the first two, at least the last one. You know, we compromise in some area of a relationship is usually what happens, right? Maybe in a relationship, maybe in our financial area, maybe it's a bad habit or a character flaw, right? And it was, well, it was only just a little bit. And then what happens is we justify it. And we say things like, yeah, but is that in the Bible? Right? Have you ever heard that? I get it. I'm a pastor, so they ask me that a lot. You know? And some of us say it like this, maybe. You might hear this phrase, like, I know it's not quite what God wants me to do, but I have to do this because, you know, fill in the blank. Right? We hear that. I know know, it's not quite what God wants, but because of this. You know, could you be in that situation today, right now, today, in some area of your life? We kind of say that. I know you're going to feel a little uncomfortable at this time because sin makes us feel uncomfortable. But listen, the way that you're going to find the inner peace that you want and not feel uncomfortable is by recognizing it and mourning over it. Here... Let me read this verse to you. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, any of the three things above those hindrances will will keep us from truly mourning over our sin. That's what will happen. You know, we will be just, just like Lot. We won't really seek true repentance. Yeah, I recognize that these things are wrong, but I just want to keep doing them. And he doesn't seek repentance. Repentance simply means this. This is what repentance means. To turn in the other direction. That means if I'm chasing after this sin here, it means I'm going to do this now and go the opposite direction. And it's exactly what Lot didn't do. You see, we're going to long for comfort, but not find it. Until we're broken over that thing in our lives. Instead of trying to constantly hide it and try to keep it even from God. But here's the great thing about this verse. It also tells us that if we confess it, that God is faithful and just to forgive us. That leads me to the last point, and that's this. Those who mourn find peace with God. Those who mourn find peace with God. Forgiveness is found only in our brokenness over sin because it's only then that we actually see and find forgiveness. Jesus tells this parable of these two guys that he sees in the synagogue. It's in your outline. Let's read it together. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And that tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is looking at these two guys. This one guy is like, he's doing one of the three. You know, I, I'm not a sinner. I don't even see sin around here. Lord, how great I am. And then there's this other guy who's mourning over his sin, not even wanting to come forward, not even feeling worthy enough. And Jesus says to him, you know who went home justified? You want to know the one guy who has peace and comfort in his heart now? It's that guy. It's the tax collector. Yeah, the dirty tax collector sinner. Because that's what God is in the business of doing. You know, last week I was juicing. Does anybody know what juicing is? Not steroids, by the way. I It's kind of like a new thing, and there was this buzz going around the office. Uh, George and Evelyn were talking about a lot, and a few other people, and Maria, who's a host sometimes, she does it, and they lost some some weight and everything on it. And ju- basically, juicing is you take fresh fruits and vegetables, and you put them through a juicer. You don't, like, buy a can of V8, but you make it yourself. So you kind of, we have a picture here. This was us at the office. So we all decided, a bunch of us at the office decided to do it. So you see, like, cucumbers and uh, celery and uh, apples and whatever else. I think there's ginger and stuff. Well, anyway, you take all that and you mix it up and some, let me tell you, some are better tasting than others. And that's all you have though. You don't eat, you're not supposed to eat other food. Although I confess I ate vegetables at night because we didn't have a juicer, but you're not supposed to eat like starches, meats, anything like that. And you're supposed to juice everything and drink water only. And so this is kind of what they look like after uh, they're made. Yeah. Some of them are green. Some come out brown. Some come out orange. And uh, this is one, if you were looking, trying to drink it, that's what it would look like. Kind of like that. Yeah. You know, we were, we were, we were tasting them and we're like, this reminds me of grandma's backyard, you know, it tasted like grass, you know, listen, if you can put up with it, I lost, I seriously, and I don't even need to lose it, but I lost five pounds in two days. Seriously. And I'm like, this is amazing, you know? Uh, but you have to kind of starve yourself. I, literally, people are like, how do you feel? And I'm like, it feels like I've been floating in the ocean for days drinking only water. That's how you're like all bloated. You just feel like weird inside. But the, the idea behind it is, yeah, it does, it, you can lose weight doing this. But really, what, what George and Evelyn were saying is really what it's supposed to do is reset your body physically. You, you take this and it kind of cleans you out and it gets you back normal again. and gets your, your system flowing right. And it's kind of like a physical reset. That's what it's like, a physical reset. So they say you do it for like the seven to 10 days and then you wait and then you do it like six months from now again or down the road. So I might try it again. I, I, I thought it was kind of interesting. But like, just like juicing gives us a physical reset, we are also in need regularly of a spiritual reset. Because over time, our system gets dirty with sin. Yours, mine, all of us. And we know it. I mean, I don't have to like make a, I don't have to like prove the point. All of us know over time, we're dealing with sin in our lives on a regular basis. And hopefully slower and less. And because God, you know, what happens is, is we're got the big ones out of the way. God just keeps pointing out more. I'm like, we didn't even know he had. All right, and That's the way life is when you're a Christian and you're growing in the Lord. Because we're sinful, we're flawed, every one of us. And there's not a single exception here. And our system tends to get clogged up. And we have to cleanse it. How do we cleanse our system spiritually? How do we do that? Well, you have to have a face to face encounter with God. That's what you have to do. You know, in the verse I used earlier in Isaiah, woe to those who call evil good, that's chapter 5. In chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision. And he's standing before the Lord, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. You might know, know the song. The train of his robe fills the temple with glory, and he sees this amazing vision of God face-to-face with God, and he can't help but say this. Listen, it's in your outline. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so when he comes face-to-face with God, he sees perfection, and then he looks at himself and he sees all those flaws. Isaiah finally saw himself as he really was, a flawed man, a sinful man. And this is a prophet of God. How much more so you and I, right? This is why we need a face-to-face encounter with God regularly. That's what we need. And how do we do this? Well, there's a couple ways. I didn't put them in your online, but you can write it down. You need to read your Bible. Read your Bible regularly. I don't know what regularly would mean for you, but regularly means a, a habit of happening. You know, because the Bible is a spiritual mirror for you and I. It contains the reflection of what we look like the verse that I put in your outline says this, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When we read the Bible, there's something about the, page, the words on these pages that come alive and speak directly into our hearts, the things that we need to see that God needs to communicate to you and I. If you want a face-to-face encounter with God, start reading your Bible and believe He's going to speak to you and He's going to do it. Trust me. Listen, we also should be praying to God regularly. Pray to God. I couldn't believe how God revealed my heart just the other day as I'm praying. I started praying for my family and then I was thinking, suddenly God spoke to me. He says, John, you're praying for me to do all these things, but when's the last time you've even called them? When's the last time you even bothered to... To, to, to send him a letter or whatever. I'm thinking, oh gosh. You know, my, my heart just sunk. Um, here I am praying to God and God's speaking to me. And so when you pray to God regularly, God, you're going to have that face-to-face encounter with God. And there's another way, and we're going to actually do that in a few moments. And it's called communion. You see, in communion, you and I should both come face-to-face with God. You know, we haven't we don't always do communion regularly and you may notice that. We might do it once a month or we might do it more periodically because we don't want it to become just a regular thing in our lives. Because sometimes you can just come up and say, oh yeah, I come up and I take the elements and I take the, you know, I take the wine, I take the bread and, and, and it just becomes, yeah, that's what we do every week. Instead, when we do it every certain time or in certain moments, it's an opportunity for us to come up and say, look, what am I doing here? What, what is this in my hand right now? The Bible tells us that it represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. You know, in the Jewish culture, in the Middle Eastern culture, when you ate with somebody or you shared something, you became one with them. And it's you and I saying, I'm becoming one with you, Jesus, in all that you are, and everything that you taught, and what you mean to me. It's also the representation of what God did for you and I on the cross. And for us to come up and share in that, And like, Look what you did on the cross, but I'm going to take that in a flippant attitude, it's like, it can't be. It can't be. We have to be serious about what God is doing. Because this is what happens when I have communion, and I love communion. But it's an opportunity for me to break down and just say, Lord, sometimes, you know, you go like a week or two, whatever, you go some time, and there's things you just haven't confessed. There's things you've been holding in in your heart. Maybe things that you've done to other people, or just stuff that you know you shouldn't have been involved in. And then you come face to face with God in a moment like this, and you just like break down and just say, Lord, I have to I have to let all this out. I have to tell you before I partake of this. And I think that's what communion is for you and I. It's the opportunity for you and me to say, God, I need to confess some stuff right now. I need to get this off my chest so that I can have a one-to-one relationship with you again. George is coming out right now. We're going to play a song, and um, and we're going to do communion. And so maybe this for you. Right now, I don't know where you've been Because I'm willing to bet there are a few of you in here Because I know it's, I've been there That there's some of you that need this right now You need right now to pray to God for forgiveness You've been a Christian for a while Maybe you've never been a Christian But you need to open your heart and just say Lord, forgive me Thank you for what this represents That you died on a cross for me to pay for my sin We're going to pray and then I'm going to ask uh, George going to sing a song then just come forward and then grab the elements but take them back to your seat and hold them and we'll take it together. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity to come face to face with you because you instituted this. You instituted this and asked us to do it regularly, God, because you know it's what we need to clean out the junk from time to time in our lives. Lord, right now, I know there are people in our hearts here that need to just get the things off their chest. Lord, to mourn over their sin. Lord, because it's then that you can come in and comfort. Lord, I pray as everyone comes forward, we take this with an attitude of just that. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can come up, come forward now.
1: Bring hope to the hopeless and light To those in the darkness and death to light Now I am alive Oh, now you give peace to the restless and joy that are broken. I see you now. In you i found. And you open the door for me. And you lay down your life to set me free. All that I
0: Apostle Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and then he gave thanks, and he broke it. He said, Take this, it is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This bread, Jesus' body, was broken and took on our pain and our sorrows so that we To be comforted, let's take and eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." Jesus spilt his blood. And it says that we are forgiven because of it, because in the Old Testament it says this, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin. Jesus spilt his blood so he could take away all of our sins, all of our shame, all the things that we try to hide, all the things that we whisper, so that we wouldn't have to bear the guilt any longer. Thank you, Jesus. Let's drink Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for an amazing love, Lord, that honestly we can't even comprehend. Thank you for your Son Jesus who died, Lord, so that we might be comforted in our sins and in our flaws. Lord, I pray for everyone here right now. Lord, that your Spirit would go with them this day and this week. Lord, I know that we're going to stumble and fall, but Lord, I pray that we would remember that it's through our recognition of our sin and our brokenness, Lord, that we would find comfort. Lord, I pray that would be our hearts, all of our hearts, that we would mourn over sin and that we would find your joy. Lord, I thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.